0: In September of 2013, I had just got back from visiting St. Louis to check out Covenant Seminary with a friend, and um, seminary had been a dream for me for many years, and uh, I was by vocational ministry, and I came out of a tradition that did not require seminary-trained ministers, and so, uh, but as my hunger for uh, knowledge of God and uh, my own need for resources and the ability to think about God and to minister people, minister to people, grew. Uh, my longing for seminary also grew. And uh, when I came back um, from from the visit here to St. Louis, uh, I was so sort of enthralled and excited. But but coming to seminary felt like climbing Everest. I was a little bit older than the average student. I had a, an established you know family and. Um, There were just a lot of connections, there were financial challenges, there were all these different things, and it seemed like a huge logistical nightmare to just sort of pick up my family and move 1,800 miles across the country. And after talking it over with Maribel, I walked into an empty office room at my place of employment, and I just knelt down, and I just cried out to the Lord, and literally I wept. I mean... and. I told God how much I wanted it, and I don't remember ever, at that moment, feeling like there was anything I ever wanted more. Now, for some people who go to, who who do those do that, and they've got options, they could do a bunch of different things. They've got the resources, they've got the freedom, uh, but it's not like that for everybody, and it wasn't like that for me. And so it just felt like, you know, it it felt like I was praying that I could win like a billion dollar lottery ticket or something. It was like impossible. Like, the odds just seemed so stacked against me. But um, I prayed, and I asked God. Uh, there was a boldness about my prayer. I sort of was filled with the, the hopeful anticipation and expectation of this possibility, and yet at the same time, experience had taught me that God is ultimately in charge of my life, and God ultimately does what he, think it, he thinks is best, And so I surrendered the whole thing to him completely. I was asking boldly, but surrendering completely. Asking God boldly, and at the same time surrendering completely. And a prayer like that might go something like, Father, I believe you can do this. This is what I want. This is my dream. But, you know, I know that that may not be your will. And so I remember praying, Lord, and and I had tears when I, I mean, I was weeping when I was praying this. Lord, if it's not your will, you have to send me the comfort and the grace to deal with the disappointment. And it's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To pray that way. To have these high hopes of expectation, and also at the same time, Brace yourself for the possibility that you may pray something that does not happen, right? Faith is sort of this believing in our heart, hoping in our heart. I mean, faith and hope and trust go together. And at the same time, recognizing that not every prayer is also answered. And I'm talking about when you really believe in and see the possibilities of what God can do and it excites you. You know, sometimes we pray things half-heartedly. It's kind of like, Lord, well, you know, this would be great if you do it, I guess, because you know, maybe there's just not that confidence there. But I'm talking about when you really want something, when you really, really want God to do something, and you pray with all this hopeful expectation because you know God can do it. And at the same time, perhaps you have also had experiences with God in prayer where things you have prayed for are things you are right now praying for, you're yet to see the fruit of that labor in prayer It hasn't come to pass. And so what often happens is we just don't even ask in the first place. Or when we do ask, Sometimes we ask for things selfishly. This is what James 4.2 says. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The context of James's words in that chapter are, maybe none of us have done it, but early on, apparently in the church, there were people that were praying for sinful, lustful things. And so James recognizes this tendency to fall on either side of the path into a ditch. One is asking for things selfishly, right? Which means something that doesn't honor God, or not to ask at all, right? Asking selfishly or not to ask at all. And I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that for most of us, I would just I'm just going to I'm just going to guess here. Most of us probably fall into the ditch of not asking at all. Now, some of you may be praying for a Lamborghini or something, but like I think most of us probably fall into the ditch of like not asking. We're we're it's almost like you don't even get your hopes up. We don't ask God even though we're commanded in scripture in prayer to make petitions and to ask, and it's it's understandable, isn't it? We know there's a possibility of disappointment, and we want to protect our hearts, so we do what we think is the safest route by not even making the request in the first place. Most of us have this sort of de facto philosophy, which goes like this: "Blessed are they who never expect to receive." for they shall never be disappointed. That's sort of our hidden underlying philosophy regarding prayer. We would rather not be disappointed, and so we don't even ask. We just kind of preclude the outcome of the answer before even going to God in prayer. This morning I want to look at a better philosophy, a better principle, if you will, and I'm calling it the balancing principle of prayer that I believe navigates between the hope on the one hand and the fear of disappointment on the other. And it's this. Ask boldly, surrender completely. Ask boldly, surrender completely. This is the shape of petitionary prayer. It's asking God boldly, and it's surrendering completely. I'm going to use a couple examples from Scripture that I hope will illustrate this principle this morning. And the first is from Nebuchadnezz- Excuse me, Daniel chapter 3 regarding Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who erects this 90-foot image made of gold to be worshipped. Some of you know the story. And this is during the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century B.C., And the Israelites are in Babylon, and this pagan king has all of these sort of captive Jews in his empire, and it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth was six cubits, and declared that all the peoples were to bow down at certain times and worship the image. But the Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, declaring, these men, O king, Pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And it just so happened that Nebuchadnezzar had some of these Jews in his inner court. These were sort of the best and brightest of the captives that he surrounded himself with. And you may know the name of these three men. I don't know why they were called the three Hebrew boys when I was growing up in Sunday school. I don't think anything in the text, you know, intimates that they were boys. They might have been young men, but they were men. And it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you may know the story. And Nebuchadnezzar arraigns them and says, Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? If you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Not wanting to be burned alive, of course, is not a selfish request. It's a good thing. And they pray and recognize that um, God is able to deliver them. I realize that I'm missing my fourth page of my sermon. Can you put up the next slide, Larry? Go back one slide. So he interrogates them with a threat, and, and then they respond. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and the king to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So, I don't know if you saw what happened there. But it was this bold ask. In other words, this declaration that God is, was able or is able to deliver them is what I'm calling asking boldly. And you may say, well, they didn't ask. They were proclaiming. But that's essentially what it was. It is this confidence and faith in God that he is able to deliver them. And it's a bold thing, isn't it? It's a bold thing to declare and to ask things like that, to say that God is able to deliver them. And there are promises in Scripture, right? Nothing is impossible with God. There's also something from a passage in Deuteronomy 4 where there is this declaration by the children of Israel that uh, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them in the way the Lord God, Lord our God, is near to us when we pray. And this is unique about biblical religion, if I can put it that way. It is like, it is unlike anything else in the ancient world, this idea that when you make bold requests to God, that he has the power to answer and is near to us in prayer. And the reason for this is because unlike the pagan deities, There is this confidence that the God of Scripture has absolute power. And this is something that's important for each of us. It's important for each of us to recognize that prayer itself is predicated on the idea that God has absolute power. And because He has absolute power, He can answer prayer requests even bold prayer requests. On the flip side of the confidence of these three Hebrew men is this acknowledgement that God is still worthy to be worshipped and their loyalty to God is never predicated on some type of guarantee that he will indeed answer every single prayer. I know it's a hard thing, right? Right? it's a hard place to be in, where God invites us to pray and to ask boldly for things, and at the same time, there is the need for surrender. Because if God is indeed absolutely powerful, that means there are times when God overrides us. And if we're not careful, that will cause us, as I said, not to pray at all, but that is the opposite of the biblical command to pray. And so we find ourselves in this sort of weird tension of knowing that God is sovereign over all things, and yet God invites us to pray and to make requests. And look at what they say. Um, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that he... That we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So here is this surrender, this bold declaration that God will deliver them from the fiery furnace, and also this surrender that He may not. God is able to do anything, and at the same time, He is ultimately sovereign, and there is a need to surrender to that, like I did in the, that office that, that day in prayer. God, this is something I want. It's my dream. I said it with tears. And yet, not my will, right? Lord, I, I want your will done in my life. And I realize that if this is not your will, you know, that's okay, but you have to, you have to comfort me. You have to give me the grace to deal with that. And so not wanting to be burned alive or refusing to worship an idol was a good thing, but they knew that God was sovereign. They surrendered completely to God's will. If we know that God is sovereign, but then don't pray because we say, well, God has predetermined all things, so why pray? We're sort of demonstrating really bad theology. That's sort of a, a leap we're making, maybe in our logical minds, that the Bible itself doesn't make, right? Scripture never says, hey, like, God is sovereign, so don't even, don't even bother asking, because whatever he's planned to determined is going to happen anyway. Actually, we don't see that in the Bible. We see people praying and God, at times, changing his mind. I mean, it happens over and over again in Scripture, Now, there may be some sidebar discussion about, well, what does that mean about the sovereignty of God? I mean, that's not the focus of my sermon this morning. The focus is God is sovereign, but invites us to make petitions and requests. And we see in Scripture God often answering those requests. Now, if you don't know how the story, uh, if you you didn't know this story uh, before, It is one of the most harrowing stories in the Bible, and the details, the way things happened was, um, the king did his worst. God didn't stop Nebuchadnezzar from binding them and throwing them in the fire. But the king looks into the furnace and sees that they're not only being burnt up by the fire, but they're free from their sort of shackles, and there's not just three people down there in the furnace, there's a fourth, and he looks like the son of God. Now, how does Nebuchadnezzar ever know what the son of God looks like? I don't know, but in his mind, he sees a fourth person down there that is with them in this sort of literal fiery trial and they were rescued. God answered that bold ask, that sort of declaration of faith and expect and hope that our God is able to, able to deliver us from your hand and from the fiery furnace. And indeed, that is exactly what God did. They all lived. But what's instructive for us is that their loyalty to God was not contingent on the outcome. Does that make sense? They're, Loyalty to God was not contingent on the outcome. They made a bold request, but they also surrendered that request to God's sovereign will. And they worshiped and served God for something other than simply the petition, right? They clearly had a relationship with the Lord before this fiery trial. And I'm afraid what often happens today in our culture is people put this sort of contingency... And connect their faith to this kind of contingency. It's this is what I want God to do, and if He doesn't do it, I'll just, you know, I'll turn my back on Him, or I won't believe in Him. Or maybe people say, I don't believe in God because I asked Him to do this and He didn't do it. But that's not what we see here. Their loyalty to God is not based on the outcome of their petition, they serve and love God because He's God. they ask boldly, they surrendered completely. Now, we might want to ask, what exactly has to be surrendered? What exactly do we need to surrender in prayer when we are asking God and making petition to God? Well, it's our will. And it takes the ability, I think, to recognize that my will is not and God's will are not always aligned. So it takes maturity to do that. Um, some things we can ask for are hurtful for us. Some things that we think are good for us are actually bad for us. And because we're not God and don't have the will of God functioning in our hearts perfectly, sometimes we ask for things unwittingly that are harmful us now it never feels that way does it whenever we pray for things it always seems like a good thing but perhaps you can look back on your life and look at things that seemed like a good idea and you were really glad God did not give it to you it Seemed like a good idea I remember Maribel and I have sort of I've shared the story before we got together as teenagers and by 18 Uh, We had a couple kids. We were already married. Um, There's a whole background behind that. I'll tell you another time. But I remember I needed a job. And by the church we were attending, there was a tire shop, uh, affordable tire. And they needed someone to change out the tires. And I needed a job so bad. And I remember applying for the job. They called me, and they asked if I had any experience. And I said, no, but I'm a quick learner. And I think the job paid... I don't know, maybe minimum wage or a little bit more. I don't remember. Maybe it paid a couple bucks over minimum wage and that appealed to me at the time as an 18-year-old. And boy, did I pray for this job. I was so eager. I just wanted to work. You know, I wasn't lazy. And they said, sorry, we need somebody with experience. And I said, but, 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 but. And the door just sort of slammed in my face. And I was so frustrated because it was like, why wouldn't God give me something that seemed to be so good for me? Now, I had another application out there at the grocery store, and there was a grocery chain in California, and it was union and had benefits and all these things. I didn't know that at the time. Well, when that door slammed, and not to be cliche-esque, right, like when one door closes, another opens, but, you know, with prayer, it often is true. And I got the call from this grocery store, and I got hired, and it was a much better job. They had this whole pay scale. I mean, it was a union gig. I had benefits. I mean, within a a year or two, I was making three times the amount as I would have at the tire shop. The tire shop, I would have went nowhere. And quickly, I was able to see that for my own good, God did not answer that prayer because he knew things that I didn't know about the future, he was able to recognize things that that were for my good that I could not recognize. And it encouraged me. It encouraged me in my prayer life that God ultimately knows things that we don't and sometimes does not answer prayer for his sovereign will and purpose. Now, another example, the other example I want to use this morning is from Luke 22 and 39 And it's when Jesus knows that his time had come to go to the cross. And it says that Jesus withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus himself had to submit his will to the will of God. Within Jesus, there is a wrestling between these two wills. Now, a pastor friend uh, once told me that during his ordination exam, he was asked, How many wills does Jesus have? And it's not the kind of thing he remembered learning in seminary. So he said, One? And you know, the ministerial committee at his, in his presbytery just went. And he went, Two? And they went. <laughs> and the issue revolves around the relationship between Jesus' human and divine natures. And essentially, if Jesus didn't have a human will as well as a divine will, it would be really hard to see him as truly human. But he was. And so he had a human will as well as a divine will. We know he had a divine will because he was the eternal word made flesh, John 1.18. Now, we obviously have a human will, but we don't have a divine will well, because we're not God. And this is why Jesus tells us to regularly pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. Most of you know that, right? In the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You may not have to say those exact words in prayer, but that should animate your prayer when you pray. This surrender, here's these petitions, and let your will be done. Again, it seems like attention. It seems like a contradiction, but it's not. When is the last time you made a request in prayer and then immediately said, Your will be done. I mean, you don't have to answer. Just think about it. Do you regularly surrender your petitions to God by saying, your will be done? It can feel, again, like a contradiction, but it's not. When Jesus knelt down to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest... His human will wanted to escape the suffering that awaited him. I don't think he'd be human if he didn't feel that way. Who wants to suffer, right? Who wants to die? Who wants to be crucified? So he asks the Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. There's the bold ask. But he's also submitted to God's will, and so he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there's the complete surrender. The bold ask, if if you're willing, if you desire it, Father, let this cup pass from me. He asks boldly. And then he surrenders completely by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, we obviously know what happened to Jesus, but what's so remarkable about this is that Jesus knew beforehand what his destiny was. It wasn't like he didn't know he had to go to the cross, and he still asked. His belief in the sovereignty of God did not preclude his petitions. He did not sort of forego the outcome of a petition because he believed in the sovereignty of God. Jesus believed that the father would at least consider his request. Now we might want to ask, was was that foolish and mere wishful thinking? Well, I think the answer is no, it was not foolish. It was precisely because he saw the father answer so many prayers and petitions. He saw God answer so many prayers that even as he was facing arrest and death, he had this boldness to ask for the cup to be removed. And to me, this conveys a truth, a central truth that I hope you take away this morning, that Jesus was not cynical about prayer. He was not cynical about prayer but we are aren't we at some point in our lives i think we all grow cynical now some of that has to do with the world's promises falling short right sort of life disappoints you life says this is what you know it means to be happier this is this is you know here this like set of you know promises that the world gives and of course the world disappoints us and so there's a lot of things that cause us to become cynical crushing disappointments weariness a sense of defeat and christians like anyone else can easily slip into cynicism perhaps that's why you don't pray or perhaps that's why you do not make bold requests to god is you've grown cynical But we have to fight against cynicism. Paul Miller explains why cynicism is so damaging to our spiritual life. He says, cynicism and defeated weariness have this in common. They both question the active goodness of God on our behalf. Satan's first recorded words are cynical. He tells Adam and Eve, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Satan is suggesting that God's motives are cynical. And Paul Miller goes on to say, both the child and the cynic walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but the cynic focuses on the darkness, and the child focuses on the shepherd. This is really important for us because the defining characteristic of our age today is cynicism. We live in a cynical culture. We've become such a cynical culture that every truth claim is now suspect. In fact, you may be noticing sort of as we expand out just for a moment from the topic of prayer that all truth claims are now on the chopping block. I mean everything. Everything that was sort of the established norm about the way the universe functions—all of it is up in the air. You know, gender. I mean, all the—that's that, that, that's just one of about a hundred right now. You know, and it's it's all on the chopping block. To the point where even secular people are rejecting science, right, on a lot of different levels, because. Just the idea of truth itself cannot be trusted. That's how cynical we are as a culture, that we assume that, that sort of all structures of knowledge are suspect, that they've been established by people with evil motives, all truth claims, not just the Bible. It started with the Bible, and now it's everything. And so we live in a cynical culture, and as Christians, we can get sort of swept up into that. In fact, I would say we are. We are swept up into that cynicism, and it plays itself out in the fact that we actually don't really trust that God is good. We may say, no, I, I believe God is good, but in our actions, we don't. We've become cynical about God because we think, I, I just, right? It, it, it's embodied in the things we do and don't do. We're to the point where we don't even trust the promises of God. But it's the promises of God that are the remedy to our cynicism. And I fear many of us have confused the world's promises with God's. We have all these disappointments in life, and we just assume that God had guaranteed us all of these different pursuits that the world had guaranteed, right? I mean, what are some promises the world Gives us that often are fleeting, right? The world's promises are they promise life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, which often mean, you know, money, sex, and power. And all of those things are fleeting and disappointing and can't give you lasting fulfillment. God promises a different life, right? Life abundant, abundant life. Not just eternal life, but in this life, our life is transformed and different. That's, what's on, that's, that's what he promises. He promises us a conscience cleansed from sin and a heart that is renewed after the image of its maker and a confident faith in a savior who is the sovereign Lord over the cosmos that has the power to not only hear our prayers, but answer them. Now, the world can't make promises like that. The world cannot say, if you ask, it'll be given, because there is one who has the power to do all things. But that promise comes from God. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe you actually serve a God who has absolute power to answer prayer? Or have you grown cynical? I want to encourage you this morning, today, and this week to write down a list of some bold asks. Things to pray about. Things that are bold. And you may be thinking, well, I want to be careful not to ask selfishly. Look, as long as it's nothing sinful, right? That's what James was talking about. Things that are lustful, right? Things that are deeply materialistic or covetous, but it's not wrong to ask for a house. If you need a new car, yours is sort of the jalopy. It's not wrong to pray that God bless you with a newer car, right? So it's not just (laughs) spiritual things, right? God knows we need material things as well. Maybe that loved one who just seems like there is no way they will ever know Christ, Whatever it may be, I want you to just write a list down this week of things that are bold, things that maybe you've just sort of, because your heart can't take it, maybe you've just given up in prayer or you don't pray very often because it just seems too big for God or it just seems like there's no way God would do this. I want to encourage you this week to go to God. And when you go to God, to ask and keep asking. And you can keep surrendering it. But surrendering something does not mean you stop asking about it. I'm praying for something right now. I've been praying for a couple years, and every time I pray, I surrender to God, and I keep going back to God in prayer because that's what he's told me to do. And I believe one day God's going to do it. And at the same time, I'm surrendered to God's will about it. And I don't know how long this is going to go on, but clearly God answers some prayers quicker than others. So go ahead and ask boldly, but surrender completely. And keep asking until it comes to pass and keep surrendering to God's will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have invited us to come boldly before your your throne, to come boldly and ask boldly. Maybe our hearts have... Um, been bogged down with doubt. And maybe we look at these stories in the Bible and we think to ourselves, well, that was then, but God doesn't do those kinds of things now. But Father, you encourage us to have big faith and to trust in a big God who can do all things. So Lord, I pray that you bolster our faith, that we may again as your people once again come before you boldly with big asks, with extravagant expectations and help us not to give up when at first those things don't happen, but to continue to pursue you in prayer and to remind you of the promises you've given us in Scripture and to be bold about it Encourage our hearts this morning for those of us who are weary, who do feel defeated, and maybe even feel cynical about the world we live in. Father, help us to retrieve and recover and restore to us a sense of your mighty power to answer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.